Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful that we have visitors with us as always. We encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. If you are looking for a church home, we want you to feel like you found it right here at Olive Branch. We'd love to have you come and join hands with us as we do our best to make known New Testament Christianity in this community. I know this morning there were some concerned faces about the length of the outline for tonight. I had a couple of people make mention to me about the breadth of the outline, and so my assurance to you, as long as you don't have anything pressing until about 9 o'clock tonight, you should be good. Actually, when I was putting this lesson together, and as I was putting it on the computer, I began to look at the numerous points and I thought, really, this is probably two lessons. But rather than go back and try to redo it or anything, I just went ahead and left it as one. And so that being the case, we will probably look at a couple of different facets of this material in the next two weeks and maybe longer. But I want us to think for just a minute or two tonight about Jesus and the church. The passage that was read just a moment ago, I think, emphasizes the relationship that Jesus has with the church. The Bible says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. When we preach Jesus Christ or Christ crucified, we have to preach about the church because the two are intertwined. You really can't separate them. You see, Jesus Christ loves the church, so much so that he bought it with his own blood. Not only did he buy the church, he built it. And so we're going to talk about the church and the relationship that Jesus sustains to this great institution. I want to begin by saying this. It is a tremendous privilege to be a member of the church that we read about in the Bible. To know that we can simply be New Testament Christians. Nothing more and nothing less. That we can be a member of the church that we read about in the Bible. Everything that we do, everything that we preach, should be based on what the scriptures say. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so as we talk about Jesus and the church, and as we think about the preaching that took place in the first century, you need to understand that the early apostles, they preached about the church. The early disciples. Philip, you recall, in Acts chapter Eight at verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to those people. In verse 12, the Bible says that they believed those things that they had heard concerning the kingdom of God. That's a church. And so, did Philip preach Jesus? Yes, he did. Did he preach about the church? Absolutely. So, having said that, let me just call attention to some things that are said in scripture about the church. Number one, I want to submit tonight that the church was built 
by Jesus. When we say that the church was built by Jesus, what we're really doing is emphasizing the fact that he is the founder of the church. The church that we read about in the New Testament was founded by Jesus, the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 16, you recall Jesus, while in Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked the question, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Two things here. Number one, Jesus promised to build his church. It belongs to him. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus promised to build the church. He said, I will build my church. That is singular in nature and possessive in nature. Singular from the vantage point, he just built one. Possessive from the vantage point, it belongs to him. Now, when you look at what the Bible has to say, in Ephesians chapter 3 at verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that the church that Jesus built, that was founded by him, is a result of God's eternal plan. The church was no accident, but rather God planned, he purposed for this divine institution. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said, beginning in verse 9. And to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed or accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The church was a part of God's eternal redemptive plan. We go back and look at some of the prophecies of old in the Old Testament. Isaiah, for one, Isaiah has been called the statesman prophet. He began his prophecies about 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth. And in chapter 2, at verse 2, Isaiah said, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established on top of the mountains. He said, it will be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. That gives insight into the fact that the church is viewed as an exalted institution, that it would be comprised of all people, that is both Jew and Gentile. That was God's eternal plan. It was his eternal purpose. And then there is Daniel. Daniel, of course, in chapter 2, interpreted a dream by a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And in his interpretation, Daniel foretold of four very important world empires, beginning with that head of gold being the Babylonian empire. And he said, it shall come to pass 
in these days, or in these days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. What kingdom is he talking about, the church? Daniel in the long ago was saying, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings. Now, if you go back and you look at world history, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of Babylon. Babylon fell in about 539 B.C. to the Medes and the Persians. And under Cyrus, the Persian king, God's people were allowed to leave captivity and return home and begin rebuilding the temple. And then the Medes and the Persians fell in about 330 B.C. to the Macedonians or to the Grecians. And the Grecians later gave way to the Romans. And what Daniel is saying is, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That kingdom is the church. It's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist, who, by the way, was the forerunner to the Christ, and John the Baptist had the mission of trying to point people in the direction of Jesus, John said in chapter 3, verse 30 of the Gospel of John, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, I must decrease. John's, John's ministry was to point people in the direction of the Messiah, the Christ, to prepare the hearts and lives of people to receive the Christ, the Son of the living God. When John the Baptist began his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom he was talking about is the very same kingdom that Daniel foretold of centuries earlier. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, would begin his, pers his personal ministry here upon this earth at, the, at about the age of 30. And he too would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what do you have? God planning for the church. God prophesying of the church. Furthermore, you have God through John the Baptist, Jesus his son, preaching about the church. And then you have Jesus, the Son of God, promising to build the church. As he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Let me ask this question. If Jesus promised to build the church, did he hold true to that promise? The answer is a resounding yes. Of course he did. Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 2, said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. When you look at the New Testament, you'll find that the church began in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost Day in about AD 30, 33, somewhere along, in, along that time frame. The church is a result of God's eternal plan. I can't emphasize that enough because there are a lot of people that have the idea that the church is an afterthought, an accident. It's not. It's something very special in the mind of Almighty God. Now, Jesus is the founder of the church, but he's also the foundation of the church. Did you know that everything rests on Jesus as the chief cornerstone? In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 20, Paul said, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone is that upon which the structure rests. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the foundation, or rather the church, rests on him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 11, 
Paul said, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The psalmist said in the long ago, except the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So what do we have? We have Jesus building the church. Jesus promised to build the church. We have, in looking at the scriptures, God's eternal plan. We have God's prophecies about the church. We have preaching about the church. We have the promise of the church. And ultimately that church came into being on Pentecost Day nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, I said Jesus built the church. Let me suggest in the second place that the church was bought by Jesus. That ought to say something to us about the intimate relationship that the church enjoys to Christ. Again, think about what Paul said in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How important is the church to Jesus? Important enough for him to die for it. In Acts chapter 20 at verse 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Think about that for a minute. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Let me ask this question. When he purchased the church, he promised to build it, didn't he? Matthew 16, 18, yes he did. When he built the church, when he bought the church, how many churches did he build? How many churches did he buy? Just one. How do I know that? Well, Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, there is one body and one spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. There is one body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. So Jesus bought the church. In Colossians 1.18, when Paul said he is, the he is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, that word beginning means active cause, the source from which something came to life. And what Paul is saying there is that Jesus is preeminent in his relationship to the church. Why? Because he bought it. He's the one that started it. He built it. It originates with him. He is the one that brought it into being. And he did so on behalf of Almighty God because it was in accordance with God's eternal plan. Now as we think about Jesus purchasing the church with his own blood, there are a couple of things that maybe we ought to think about in connection with this thought. Since Jesus bought the church, number one, that would suggest it belongs to him, doesn't it? The church doesn't belong to me, nor does it belong to any man. No one has the right to build a church other than what is recorded in the scriptures. Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, you recall, you recall God instituted the Passover in chapter 12. And there's an interesting statement made in chapter 13 about Israel's relationship to God. And it was a type of the relationship that we enjoy in Christ and in the church today. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, God said to Moses in the long ago, sanctify to me all the firstborn among the children of Israel. He said, 
Whatever opens the womb, whether man or beast, it is mine. God is saying under the Mosaic dispensation, under the old covenant, the firstborn belongs to me. It's mine. What's the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so in Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 23, the writer said to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, or the church of the firstborn ones, who are registered in heaven. Now let me just pause there for a minute. What is the significance of the firstborn? Remember what God said back in Exodus chapter 13 verse 2? The firstborn belongs to whom? To God. God said, it's mine. And what God is saying about a New Testament believer, that is somebody who belongs to the body of Christ, he's saying, they belong to me, they're mine. In Hebrews 12, 23, when he writes to the general assembly and church of the firstborn once, he's saying, they are mine. They've been set apart for me. Why? Because we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We've been set apart from the world unto Almighty God. We are a part of the community of the saved, the ecclesia, the called out. That's what it means to be a member of the church. We are the called out ones. We belong to him. How, did we, how were we afforded this special relationship? Well, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 10, salvation is in Christ Jesus. The only way a person can get into Christ Jesus is by being baptized into Jesus Christ. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, there are a number of benefits or blessings. Number one, we, we are delivered out of the power of darkness. That is the world. That's what Paul said in Colossians 1.13. We are translated into the kingdom of the son of his in the son of his love. We're, we're translated into the kingdom of Almighty God. It is in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to Colossians 1 at verse 14. So, when we're baptized into Christ, what happens? We're translated out of that sphere of darkness into the kingdom of light. We enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why do we need the blood of Christ? Because without the blood of Christ, we can't be saved. The Bible says... Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood, Revelation 1.5. In Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we're saved by the blood of Christ. When we're baptized, we are then placed in that body that is described as the saved. In Ephesians 5.23, the Bible tells us Jesus is the Savior of the body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. Somebody says that means I've got to be a member of the church to go to heaven. Absolutely. That's what the Bible teaches. Think again about what the Hebrew writer said to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. What's the inference? If you're not among the firstborn, if you're not in the church, your name's not registered in heaven. You're not, you're not among the saved. You are not a part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at verse 13, 
Paul said, by one spirit were, were we all baptized into one body. When, when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, God places us in that divine body. We are a part of the kingdom of God, the community of the saved. Remember the church. Do we have to be voted into the church? Does somebody have to sit down and decide whether or not we can be a member of the church? No. What the Bible teaches is that when you obey the gospel, God is the one that adds us to the church. We belong to the body of Christ. So, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you're outside the blood of Christ. You're outside the sphere, the ark of spiritual safety. And the inference is your name's not written in heaven. In Hebrews 12, 23, the Bible also speaks of God, the judge of all. One day we're going to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account of the deeds done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Are you ready for that day? You ready to stand before the Lord and give an account of your, of your life? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you faithfully serving and living for him day in and day out? If you're not, you're not ready. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, since Jesus bought the church, number one, it belongs to him. Number two, it ought to bear his name. I mean, think about it. The church belongs to Jesus. If it belongs to Jesus, and the Bible talks about how the church is the bride of Christ, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, the Bible says, the bride has made herself ready. It's a picture of the church. One day Jesus will come again to receive his bride. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Probably not tonight, but we will talk about the bride of Christ. But nonetheless, when, when a couple, when, when they get married, when a, a young man and young woman get married, what, what typically transpires is the woman takes the name of the groom. I suspect that Anna Sanders will become Anna Rhodes. Anna Sanders Rhodes. Well, Jesus bought the church. It belongs to him. It ought to bear his name. Let me, let me just cite for you, collectively speaking, some of the names that are used in the Bible to describe his people, collectively. First, in the American Standard Version, the term church is found 95 times. The Bible also speaks of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is found 68 times in the New Testament. For example, in Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, there are some standing here that shall not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. He's talking about the church. And then there is the expression, the kingdom of heaven. That expression is found 32 times in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 13, 44, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. And then we have the church of God. 
found 11 times in the American Standard Version of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 2, Paul wrote to the church of God at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then there is the expression, the churches of Christ, in Romans 16, 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, the Bible speaks of the churches of the saints. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we have a reference to the house of God, the church of the living God. In the American Standard Version, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it is called the church of our Lord. These are biblical names. If somebody were to ask you, what are you a member of? You could say, I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the church of God. I'm a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I'm a member of the church of Christ. I am a part of the churches of the saints. Those are biblical names. We have the right to use those names. I love the name church. Somebody says, what church are you a part of? I'm a part of the church. What church? The church of the Bible. When we talk about the church, we're talking about the church that is revealed in the Bible. Now, we could call ourselves the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church of God, the church of the living God, the church of Christ. All of those are biblical names. But since Jesus bought the church, should it not wear his name? Should it not exalt him? Should it not bring him glory? Let me just read for you some statements that I came across that I think are really helpful as we think about the names that are used in the Bible to describe the church. And I want to read for you some statements that have been made in the past by religious leaders. One of the religious leaders was a member of the church. The other, the other three, they were not members of the church that, that we talk about in the Bible. But as I read these statements, I want to say to you, what they had to say was right on. They nailed it. Listen, if you would, to what Martin Luther said. And this has to do with what name shall we call the church? Martin Luther said, I pray you to leave my name alone. Call not yourselves Lutherans, but Christians. Who is Luther? My doctrine is not mine. I've not been crucified for anyone. St. Paul would not, have, would not that any should call themselves of Paul, nor of Peter, but of Christ. How then does it befit me, a miserable bag of dust and ashes, to give my name to the children of Christ? Cease, my dear friends, to cling to these party names and distinctions. Away with them all. And let us call ourselves only Christians after him from whom our doctrine comes. He was right. Let me read for you what John Wesley had to say. John Wesley and his brother Charles, they are considered the ones from whom the Methodist church began. Here's what John Wesley said. Would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot. 
that we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples at the feet of the common master to hear his word, to imbibe his spirit, and to transcribe his life into our own. You see, I think, I think he got it right. When, when we talk about a name and the name that the church should wear, we, we don't have the right to call the church after ourselves. We, we have no more right to call the church after the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, or, or anybody else for that matter. It ought to wear the name of Jesus. And then Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is an interesting individual. He preached in the 1800s for the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London. Some have said that he preached to about 10,000 people per week. This guy had enormous influence. Listen to what he said. I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope they will soon be gone. I hope the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. He got it right. All, all he was saying is, let's call our, ourselves after a biblical name. Think about that. Think about the impact of somebody preaching to 10,000 people per week and saying, look, we don't need to be calling ourselves we don't need to be calling ourselves this. We, we, need, we need to be calling ourselves Christians. And then Alexander Campbell. The reason I want to read Alexander Campbell is because there are a lot of people that have the idea that he's the one that started the Church of Christ. Listen, please, listen very carefully. If Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ, I'm in the wrong church. I promise you, if he started this church, I, for one, would not be a member of it. I do not want to be a member of any church that any person started. I want to be a member of the church that we read about in the New Testament. That's what we're calling on people to do. Let's go back to the New Testament. Let's simply call New Testament things by New Testament names. Let's do Bible things in Bible ways. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Many, many years ago when I guess I would have been called a boy preacher, I was in a retirement home and I was talking to somebody about being baptized into Christ and I overheard a man across the way call me a Campbellite. I'm not a Campbellite and I take offense to anybody calling me a Campbellite. My, my life is not patterned after Alexander Campbell nor am I a member of the church that Alexander Campbell started. I am a member of the church that Jesus bought and built. I am a member of the church that I can read about in the New Testament. I am not a member of any other church. When I talk about the church of Christ, I'm not saying to people in the world, our church, our denomination is better than your denominations, denomination because the church of Christ is not a denomination. Sometimes we use the term church of Christ in a denominational way. 
Sometimes you'll hear people say, I am Church of Christ. I'm not Church of Christ. I am a member of the Church of Christ. I am a member of the church. I'm a member of the church of God, the church of the Lord, the church of the saints, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but I am not a church of Christ. Collectively, we are the church of Christ. Collectively, we are the church of the Lord. Collectively, we are the church of God. Individually, we are believers. Acts 5.14 We are disciples. Acts 9 verse 1 We are followers of the way. Acts 9 at verse 2 We are Christians. Acts 11.26 We are saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 If somebody asks you what are you You can say you're a disciple, you're a believer You're a saint You can say that you are A brother in Christ Colossians 1.2 but you're not a church of Christ. Listen to what Alexander Campbell said. But alas, the enemies have blasphemed the blessed gospel by pasting our sinful names upon it to bring it into disrepute. And really what he was saying there is, or what he was writing about, had to do with those who were calling themselves Campbellites or Stonites. And what he was saying is, look, I'm unworthy. You don't need to be calling yourself after me. Why? Because I didn't die for the church. I didn't build the church. And then also I want to read for you just very quickly something that I think carries a lot of weight. Brother Batsel Barrett Baxter, who has been dead now for over 30 years, but I think he was one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century. Great, great preacher. Great communicator of the gospel. Listen, if you would, to what he said in a book entitled Family of God on page 24. The substitution of the names of men for the name of our Lord in connection with the church is just another of the many steps which men have taken in getting away from the emphasis which the New Testament places upon Christ as the center of our religion. What we need in doctrine, in worship, and in every phase of our Christian activities is a return to the centrality of Christ. We need to forget the creeds and councils of men. We need to forget the subtractions and additions that men have made to the religion of Christ. We need to remember Christ and Him alone. This also holds true in the matter of names. As Paul wrote, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. Is it defensible that the name of some ordinance of the church should be exalted as the name of the church? Is it proper that the name of some reformer or some church leader should be exalted as the name of the church? Is it appropriate that some phase of the government of the church should become the church name? Is it logical that anything but the name of Christ should be the name that his disciples wear? Is it reasonable that anything but his name should be used as a designation of his church? May our practice come to conform to the very meaningful words of the great Christian hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I want to close tonight by saying this. I am a member of the church that I can read about in the scriptures. We have a great message to share with the lost and dying world. 
There, there are a lot of folks in our world today, they don't know anything about New Testament Christianity. They, they have been, they've been taught this or that. They, they've been, they have been taught this doctrine or that doctrine. And what we as members of the body of Christ have to share to a lost and dying world is, look, why not just be a Christian? Why not, why not go back to the first century? Let's just be a member of the church that we can read about in the Bible. If we do what they did in the first century, we will become what they were, which is New Testament Christians. Anything less is not acceptable. Anything more, not acceptable. If, if I were to open up the Yellow Pages tonight, I could read of any number of different churches in existence in this community, in northern Mississippi, we, we could go into Tennessee, we could look around the globe. There are a lot of churches, but really the question is not, can we find the church in the Yellow Pages? The question is, can we find the church that we read about in the Bible? Are you a member of the church that you can read about in the Bible? On Pentecost Day 2,000 years ago, here's what they did. They repented of their sins. They were baptized into Jesus Christ. God added them to the church. Acts 2.38, Acts 2.41, Acts 2.47. They became members of the blood-bought body of Jesus. And to those who live faithfully, the promise, the crown of life. That same promise, that same invitation is extended to all of us today to simply be a New Testament Christian, to live and to act like New Testament Christians. I want to ask you tonight, are you a member of the church that you read about in the Bible? Are you faithfully living for the Lord? If you're not a member of the church, why not become a New Testament Christian? Why not do what they did in the first century? And then be faithful until death and enjoy life eternal with Almighty God. Whatever your need may be, we encourage you to come as we stand and sing.